Good uh, evening, everyone. Welcome to this third event in our uh, Enterprise Tuesday series for um, the Lent term. I always have to remind myself to say the term correctly since I came to Cambridge. This is following up on two very, very successful events so far, and we're looking forward to yet another evening of interesting discussions. We've heard from Christian Boos in terms of artificial intelligence two weeks back. We heard from William T.P. and his success with Alexa and Amazon um, last week. And this week we're sort of shifting gears a bit and we're bringing also the big guns into the room. So it's not only about entrepreneurship, but it's going to be also about how larger and smaller companies might be co-creating value and how easy or difficult this tango tends to be. Uh, I'm here um, as the janitor tonight, in a sense. I'm a faculty member, I'm a professor here at the Jazz Business School and the director of the Entrepreneurship Center, but I will just take care of the basics like please shut down your mobiles because that's my, or put them into the silent mode if you want to hear the, the better version of that because that might be better uh, given the fact that it would be pretty disturbing having something going off. Uh, in case of a fire which we all not wish for, we will have to stand up and from the half down, we're going to go out through this door, half up, out through the other door, and we have to concentrate out in the main yard. And um, I would um, like to do one last thing before I uh, shut up and, and let the evening go. I'd like to thank, um, first of all, thank the panelists, but that, that will happen in just a few seconds. But before I go into the panelists, I'd like to thank our sponsor for the evening, uh, DLA Piper, who has been generous enough to, uh, to support us. Uh, during this event, and I'd like to hear a couple of words from you guys uh, before we go on with the evening. Yes, of course. Thank you very much for the introduction. Uh, as he said, we are sponsoring the event tonight. Uh, we are, so I'm here on behalf of DLA Piper. Uh, we're one of the largest business global law firms in the world, and we have a presence in most of the biggest uh, technology hubs across the world, and so we think that, that gives us a unique insight in terms of some of the legal challenges that, that faces uh, businesses from the start-up business all the way through to the established businesses. Um, I said, from, from that experience, what we are trying to do is to give the right support, give the support to the people in the right places. And we have identified Cambridge as being a very important contributor to the start-up scene. Uh, we have a lot of uh, affiliation with Cambridge as a place. A lot of people of our, in our senior membership team have uh, been to Cambridge University, which is very good. And also we have a lot of established clients in Cambridge, such as Arm, for example. We also uh, sponsor the Deloitte Fast 50. And the last year, obviously, we won by delivery, but there was five startups from Cambridge that were involved in that event. And as part of our sponsorship, we do have the ability to nominate uh, startups from across the country, and of course, one of the things that we'd love to do is to invite people from Cambridge to join that scheme and therefore uh, be part of that program. In terms of who I am, I'm the head of the university initiative at DLA Piper. And my purpose really is to provide support and assistance to startup businesses and to assist uh, student or university spin-outs in terms of taking an idea and helping them to commercialize it. Um, so we've been doing this now for a good couple of years. And we've identified the fact that there's a lot of startups out there that may not know the legal landscape. They may have a great idea, but they may not know how to take the legal framework and protect themselves going forwards. So what we have done to provide some assistance 
is that we prepared uh, a legal startup pack, and that is a publicly available document. It's available at the link described, and what it does, it's a collection of legal documents and legal checklists, and it's designed to try and bring um, some attention or raise certain red flags to you now, such that you don't create a problem later. Because the last thing that we want to see is that a business fails because of some legal technicality. We want as many businesses to be successful as uh, we can. And if you speak to me in the networking event, I can give you some great examples of how very important businesses have failed because of some legal technicality. I'd also like to mention the fact that we will be coming back on the 1st of March. And this gives uh, startups the opportunity on a one-on-one -on -one basis to to ask us questions, we're going to bring a very big team with us that covers uh, corporate law, intellectual property and employment. So if there is a burning question that you've wanted to ask a lawyer for a long time, but hadn't known who to ask, then come along, sign up to the event on the 1st of March, and we'll be more than happy to, to help you. Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks for the support and the sponsorship. We really, really appreciate that. So. Um, I'm not going to hold uh, too, too much longer. I'll introduce the chair for the night, uh, the master of the ceremonies, who is a true master. Right? He, he actually is a master of one of the colleges here, and maybe the most famous college here in the University of Cambridge, uh, uh, Sir Gregory Winter, who is the master of Trinity College. He uh, has been with Trinity College since the beginning of his academic career, right? if I'm, if I'm correct, all the way from his studies. And um, if there is one interesting thing, apart from the fact that he has led quite some uh, intensive, I did say something about the mobile phones before, um, <laughs> quite some uh, intensive research efforts within the MRC, the, um, uh, here, here in Cambridge, uh, by, by leading the, um, the, the, let me just get it right, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology there. Uh, it's, it's the fact that he's been one of those quote unquote, and I'm saying this in a positive way, hybrid scientists who has always stepped between academia research and also practice and value creation, right? Um, he's, um, he's, pretty, he's pretty unique in the sense that he has created a few companies and looking at his uh, resume earlier on, preparing for this, I was, I was, it was interesting for me to see that you have interfaced with the two biggest pharma companies here in the UK, right? Mm -hmm. For the, the Cambridge Antibody Technologies being acquired by AstraZeneca. <laughs> and uh, then uh, the, the second one, which was uh, Domantis, right? Being acquired by GlaxoSmithKline. So if there's someone who has had a little bit of an experience on, on this interaction between larger companies and startups, um, I, think, I think he is the person. And that's why he is the chair of the session tonight. So, um, a round of applause for our chair tonight. Thank you. And without further ado, I will let him introduce the rest of the panel and um, enjoy the evening. Okay, Stelios. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm mic'd up here. I have one. Yeah. So, I wasn't quite sure whether you were representing me as being entirely inbred in Cambridge or being some hybrid being. But anyway, I, I'm probably both. Um, I'd like to just start off by, uh, I think a number of you have got um, a sheet of information on each of the panellists, but, but not all. So um, this is just to, to introduce the other members. If I can start off on my left with Sean Grady, who's our representative of Big Pharma, or one of the representatives of Big Pharma this evening. Um, he's the Vice President of Business Development Operations in AstraZeneca. 
and he undertakes due diligence and, uh, and alliance and integration functions. And he's actually also inbred in that he's a fellow of entrepreneurship in this place here. Uh, so next along, Robert Townsley. Uh, so Robert um, has been around here uh, uh, as an investment director for the life sciences of K in Cambridge Innovation Capital. And um, uh, Cambridge Innovation Capital essentially tries to lever uh, uh, the relationship with the University of Cambridge, and in fact more than that, some of the surrounding institutions, to uh, uh, develop startup companies um, in a range of, you know, actually not just in life sciences, but in tech as well. And uh, I, I'm in fact involved on the board of that, on the scientific advisory board of that, and it seems to me to be a splendid um, um, operation. Um, Anna Williamson is, um, at the end there, is um, uh, listed here as being a senior manager in business development department of Genentech. In reality, a sort of Genentech spy to come to Cambridge and to look out opportunities and to pick them up and identify which would be to the advantage of, of Genentech, which of course is another splendid operation. Um, uh, it's been involved in making, uh, exploiting uh, much of the technology that I've been involved in developing on humanized antibodies, and I get a cut from some of the things they produce, which means it's very agreeable. Um, so <laughs> um, so uh, with that, I'd like to start off by uh, just pointing out that our premise this evening, the title, is Corporate Entrepreneurship Partners, uh, Partnerships, Marriage Made in Heaven or Hell. And uh, of course, I'm a bit slow on the uptake on some of these things. I wasn't quite sure what it meant, so I asked for a definition. And what it means is the early stage partnerships in a business relationship found, uh, formed between small startup business and other more established companies. So I think that's what we mean by it. And uh, the uh, idea today was that uh, we would go through each of the panelists and invite them to um, perhaps tell us a little bit about one example, or one or two examples anyway, uh, uh, um, about their own personal experience in, uh, in a, one, of these, one of these partnerships uh, and seeing whether there's any, you know, if they can see some general issues, that's fine, but sometimes anecdotes alone can be quite illustrative. So I, I could start myself, but I thought I shouldn't as chair, um, so I'll start with Sean. Thank you, Sir Greg. So, good evening, everybody. So, as you've heard, uh, <clears throat> I'm Sean Grady. I'm with AstraZeneca. So, I'm the representative of the new kid, or the relatively new kid, albeit big kid, in the uh, life science cluster here. I'm uh, what in AstraZeneca we call a lifer. So, I've actually been with the company 32 years. So, there aren't that many grey hairs in the room, but back to ICI that spun out Zeneca, that became AstraZeneca that moved to Cambridge two or three years ago. <clears throat> uh, by background and training, I'm a lawyer, so I did corporate transactions with AstraZeneca for 20 years or so. The demerger of uh, Zeneca out of ICI, the AstraZeneca merger, the creation of Syngenta, people might know, which is now going through its own uh, M&A, but about 10 years ago, I saw the light and became a business development professional and moved from being a lawyer to being the head of the M&A group in AstraZeneca. And the very first transaction that I worked on moving into business development in AZ was the acquisition of Cambridge Antibody Technology. 
albeit as a relatively, uh, relatively uh, junior BD person at that point in time. So in terms of examples, that, that if I may take two, I think the CAT example mm -hmm. is um, an extraordinary one in that AstraZeneca was a small molecule company through and through, and it wasn't a partnering company. And we'll come back to this through the evening, but we thought we had the best scientists uh, and, and the best laboratories. And why would we partner with anybody else? And particularly, why would we go into these strange, large molecule uh, areas? And if you think about it, it was a bit strange that we thought that when our scientists were in the northwest of England and just south of Stockholm. So we hardly necessarily had a monopoly uh, on ideas. But we did put in place a respiratory collaboration with, with, with CAT. And as part of that deal, we took a nine, the classic 19.9% shareholding in Cambridge Antibody. And the respiratory collaboration exceeded everybody's uh, expectations, and it was the proof points coming out of that collaboration that convinced the AstraZeneca board that we should play in the biologic space, which led to the acquisition of CAT in, in 2006, and CAT being the, the premise and the platform for AstraZeneca's move into biologics. But the story didn't end there, because a year later, <clears throat> Uh, as, as Greg probably doesn't like reminding in some shape or form, AstraZeneca purchased a company called Medimmune. So, by the way, we paid £1.2 million pounds for CAT. No, billion. Billion. What did billion. I say? Billion. <laughs> billion. Pounds for CAT. <laughs> <laughs> I said million. You said million, yeah, yeah. You, you forget how many people you pay for <laughs> and then And then what we realised was what we'd, what we'd acquired, well, we realised we were acquiring the phage display. Um, uh, engine, the research engine, and it was a very long and risky path to create a fully integrated biologics uh, business. So about a year later, we acquired a company <coughs> called Medimmune for 15.7 billion, and then uh, integrated and merged uh, the Cambridge Antibody Technology Group with Medimmune, which I think was actually quite a painful process and experience for the cat people, who'd very willingly and I think happily moved into AstraZeneca and had a good experience but all of a sudden they found themselves I guess psychologically being subsidiary to uh, these unknown people who a were American and and B um, you know felt they were kind of top dogs so there was a lot of um, a lot of sort of change management and, 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 and people aspects to the if you will merger of, of CAT and, and Medimmune but we, we made a very very important decision um, Medimmune had about 2,500 people. AstraZeneca was about 50,000 people at that 50 point in time. 50,000 people. No. 50. 50. AstraZeneca. Oh, so AstraZeneca, sorry, it's okay. Yeah. It's going to yeah, be sorry, one of those. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But to the point about okay. partnering and the sorry, relationship okay. between big companies and little okay. companies, okay. we took a decision to leave Medimmune alone. That we had a we had a you know a hands-off uh, strategy and approach, so that the HR people weren't turning up with performance management uh, forms and the she people weren't uh, turning up checking uh, the contents of the of the dustbins, because we didn't want to destroy the culture and the biotech feel and sense that was present in Medimmune and CAT, and pretty much that that sort of prevails uh, to this day. <clears throat> And 10 years later, um, probably 50% of the AstraZeneca uh, pipeline 
which is now starting to get more attention from um, investors and more excitement from investors, 50% of that pipeline is biologics. So having that acquisition really transformed, transformed our uh, organization. And then quickly, because I took too much time upon that, the, the second example that I would um, refer to is, is the partnership we have with Moderna, a messenger RNA company based in Boston, who are both stealth and potentially unicorn, and with whom we uh, established and announced a partnership, which was the first transaction we announced since Pascal Sorio became CEO. And that was important because we wanted to message to AstraZeneca stakeholders and commentators that AstraZeneca was open to partner uh, at a much, much earlier stage than frankly had been the case since the Medimmune uh, acquisition. We got um, a little bit of a, a beating because of the uh, value of that deal. It was a $270 million upfront million in this case for a very, very early and at that point unproven technology. But the point was to demonstrate that we were prepared to place bets and take risks and back potentially <coughs> disruptive uh, uh, technologies. And the way we work with Moderna is very interesting. It's the only um, partnership I've come across where the chief executive officer, in our case Pascal, is on the JCC uh, in order to demonstrate how important this partnership is to our company. Well, very good. Thank you. Uh, can you just... Just to satisfy my curiosity, why is 19.9% a, a sort of critical thing? Accounting. Okay. Explain a bit more. So you, you, if, you, you, if you stay below 20%, um, you have non-affiliate status, and therefore you don't have to put the numbers through your books. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. So it's one of those kind of things. I didn't know that. No, no. I'm not. A, I am dyslexic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much. Robert, would you like to... Oh. Amplify. Obviously, you come from a different perspective altogether, but that's why we're here to a give very our different, different perspective. And thank you very much. And yeah. again, my name is Robert Tansley. I'm investment director for Life Science at Cambridge Innovation Capital. As Greg mentioned, uh, we're a, perhaps a fairly typical venture fund in many ways. 125 million pounds. How we're different is is one that we only invest in Cambridge, Cambridge UK, um, and so of our 22 companies, all 22 of them have their origins here, and about 40% are from the university, and about 60% are, are just happen to be here. Um, and we looked for IP-rich uh, companies which have got that glimmer of greatness. And I think maybe one point which we can cap pick on uh, later is just Sean's point of why CAT, which was a fantastic science company, in many ways perhaps better than Medimmune, went for less than a tenth of the value of Medimmune, despite the fact that it has fantastic science. And, and, and that's uh, one of the reasons why we were set up and the university was very important in that is, is that Cambridge has got fantastic science, but it's got a limited number of fantastic companies and it's tried to create companies who have got that ambition to be global leaders um, is, is our, our background. Um, just on the question of, of, of the collaborations, I think inherently collaborations from an investor's perspective, put my hat on as an investor, are, are, are a good thing and that they're a positive thing. And part of the reason for that, in, in any particular room that I go into as an investor, I'm the stupidest person in the room. And there's a great knowledge asymmetry between myself and, and, and either the scientist, the academic, the entrepreneur, who will know their field so much better. 
And, and investors are typically sheep. Uh, as any of you who've set up a company, you'll get your first investor on the hook, and then everyone just piles in. And, and people like to follow um, uh, other people, um, and th there's a great kind of nervousness about taking a loan path. And so collaborations, on one sense, from an investor's perspective, just gives that third-party validation. And so if you've got an early, early company which has got an interest from an AstraZeneca or Genentech or they, uh, a high science company, that gives that third-party validation. And the, and the investors who are obviously much more ignorant than the, uh, either the farmer or the, the individuals can take a lot of comfort from that. And so there's certainly a lot of positive aspects of, of collaborations and, and potentially even collaborations early for that third-party validation. And that also applies to ven corporate venture groups and, and uh, many companies in Cambridge have corporate venture groups as, as their investors and that provides a similar kind of comfort level. But there, there are drawbacks as well and I think particularly if we're looking to create um, you know, global companies, given the way your crown jewels at an early stage can be a real uh, drawback for that. And one, one example, prior to being an investor, I spent 10 years in VC-backed companies, and before that, I worked in large pharma, and before that, as a, as a, as a hospital doctor. But my time in, in, in biotech company, where um, certainly it hasn't changed that much, and that, a company which I worked with, which first brought me to Cambridge probably 15 years ago, a company called Arrakis, and where the investors say, you've got to have a portfolio of assets. So we developed a portfolio of about half a dozen assets. And then one of them, they said, well, you need to get some third-party validation. So we were fortunate enough to, to partner um, one of our assets with Novartis, a $375 million deal. It was all looked good. Um, and then the inevitable thing is, well, you, you've got six assets. You need to focus. And the focus, instead of being a, a company which has got the ambitions to, to create something significant, suddenly you become a single asset play. The crown jewels have been licensed away to a third party. And that company is no longer an independent entity. And therefore, we lost that kind of independence through having given away what was perceived as our crown jewels. And so I think there are some very lot of positives, and hopefully we'll be able to explore those with early collaboration with third-party validation. Um, certainly from a financing perspective, there's some positives, but there are also some caveats there as well, which we should be aware of. Okay. Anna. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, Anna Williamson. I'm a member of Genentech Partnering. Um, so for those of you that aren't familiar with Genentech, Genentech was actually, at least in the US, the very first biotechnology ever, company ever established. We were founded in 1976. Um, we were acquired by Roche just under 10 years ago um, at a deal that actually valued us at just over $100 billion. <laughs> so, uh, so quite a bit. Uh, it was quite an expensive deal for Roche. And Roche actually took the same approach with us as, they, as uh, AstraZeneca took with MedImmune, where Roche took a completely hands-off approach and kept us operating as an independent unit, research and clinical development unit, within the Roche family. So we're based in San Francisco, and our um, responsibility is to develop therapeutic products from discovery all the way through to clinical proof of concept. And then we hand those uh, registrational trial-ready molecules over to the late-stage Roche clinical organization and then they take those forward into registrational trials and, uh, and onto the market. So we work in multiple therapeutic areas. We're probably most well known for oncology, where we're one of the leading players in that field, um, along with AstraZeneca. And, uh, but we do have growing franchises in other areas, such as immunology, infectious disease, neuroscience, and ophthalmology. And our mission is to develop first-in-class and best-in-class therapeutics for patients with really unmet medical needs, the patients who desperately meet, need them. And that's, that's truly our mission, and it guides everything that the company does. Um, 
Now, in order to develop these types of therapies, you know, science and innovation is absolutely key. And Roche has one of the largest research and development organizations in the industry. We plow upwards of $10 billion into research and development every year, one of the highest figures in the industry. Um, but despite this, we realize that um, in order to develop first-in-class, best-in-class products, we have to um, rely heavily on external innovation. We can't do everything ourselves in-house. In fact, what, it might surprise you to know that if you look at our pipeline of clinical stage products and you look at our marketed products, 50% of those come from uh, external collaborations, despite the fact that we plow so much into R&D ourselves and we have so many top-notch, high-caliber scientists working on research within Genentech. So the group that I'm in, Genentech Partnering, we're responsible for putting those external collaborations in place. And up until last year, all of our group was based in San Francisco. But um, we recognize that the UK is a growing powerhouse of excellent science and innovation. And so just over a year ago, um, I moved back here to establish a, a partnering presence here in Cambridge because we really wanted to be part of that. So I'm just going to transition a little into background of who I am, and then I'll tell you a little bit about the collaboration that I wanted to highlight this evening. So um, I've been in Genentech's partnering group since 2004, so I'm not, not quite as long as you, but I've been there about 14 years, so a uh, semi-lifer, I guess. Um, but if I take a larger step back, I was actually uh, an undergraduate here at Cambridge University. So I was a, a Natsuki here many, many years ago, and this will age me. I actually um, took the first neuroscience course that was ever set up at Cambridge University as an undergraduate course. So before I started, nobody actually believed that you know, anything interesting happened in the nervous system. So um, anyway, so I, I did my Natsuki here. So, so I was a Natsuki here, <coughs> then did a PhD at the old LMB. Uh, and then I moved to the States for postdoctoral studies. I did a couple of postdocs, then decided that I was, had enough of bench work, wanted to move into the, sort of the science business interface. I joined the University of California Technology Transfer Office. I was there for a couple of years, and then I moved to Genentech's BD group um, after that. So the collaboration that I wanted to highlight this evening actually is, is an example of a successful collaboration. Um, it's a recent one that actually that I led, so I'm probably very biased. It's still um, active, but it's going incredibly well. And I think it will continue to go well because I think we have all the right elements in place for the collaboration. It's actually with a company called BioNTech. BioNTech is a privately owned company located in Mainz in Germany. And the collaboration is based on their personalized cancer vaccine which is a novel and pioneering approach to stimulate the immune system to recognize and target and, and eradicate a patient's cancer cells. Um, and this is actually really an individualized approach in that each patient receives their own unique vaccine. So the process is that uh, the patient has their tumor biopsied. You then sequence the, um, the patient's tumor you identify all the unique mutations in that patient's tumor, and then you manufacture a vaccine where that vaccine comprises a subset of those mutations. You deliver that vaccine back to that individual patient, and then the goal is that the immune system will then go after the cancer cells that express those mutations. So you can tell that um, it's, it's an incredibly complex process. Um, it's time-consuming, it's expensive, we have to be exquisitely accurate. 
um, and that it needs a lot of optimization before it can be ready for the commercial scale. But it's a deal that we wanted to do because we truly think it can be game-changing in, in terms of cancer treatments. So um, I'm going to highlight three reasons as to why I think our collaboration is, is working with BioNTech is working really well, um, although there are many reasons. The first reason is the scientific fit, and I think we all agree that that's a foundational aspect of many collaborations. The science has to be there, and the, and the fit has to be there. And so we had actually been working in this field for several years, um, looking at trying to figure out how to stimulate the immune system to go after cancer cells. And we published a seminal paper in Nature in 2014, showing that we thought personalized cancer vaccine could have real promise. But we're not, a cancer vac we're not a vaccine company. We didn't have a program per se. And so, um, and not only that, we didn't have the manufacturing infrastructure to make uh, you know, a, a vaccine on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. And so the BD group, so our group, was charged with going out and finding a cancer vaccine program, a first-in-class or best-in-class program. And so we did that. We, we scoured the globe. We looked at many opportunities, and we honed in on BioNTech as the company that we thought had a really promising approach. And I think because we had the right scientific background and understanding, we were able to recognize the scientific brilliance of their program. Because we had been publishing in the field, um, their scientists knew us, and they recognized the scientific breadth, scientific breadth of knowledge that we brought. So there really was a meeting of the minds from a scientific perspective and a real passion for the science. And I think that is a key strength of our collaboration and that guides and drives the collaboration today. I think the second reason I want to highlight is the relationship that we have with the BioNTech team. We knew them actually well before we even put the collaboration in place. And the collaboration has actually just further strengthened that relationship. And it's, it's, it's so crucial to collaborations that you have a good relationship between the respective parties. It needs to be a relationship of trust, needs to be a relationship of transparency. Um, it needs to be a relationship of respect. And we have that um, you know, in spades with BioNTech. Not only that, we're actually friends. You know, we like each other. And I think that is so, so important because times will get tough in collaborations. And you have to have that mutual respect, understanding, trust in order to get through those tough times. And then the third reason I just want to highlight is, is deal structure. That is so important. You have to put in place a deal structure that is a win-win situation for both parties. And so the structure that we put in place with BioNTech was one where financially we're completely aligned. We have a 50-50 cost profit share. And then also in terms of the structure, we're working together at the research, at clinical, and at the manufacturing stage. So we're completely aligned across the board. And that is also very important in that the collaboration structure meets the needs of both parties. So um, anyway, I'm going to stop there because I've talked for quite a while. but. Um, yeah, so fingers crossed that the collaboration will work. We went into the clinic at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. We're hoping to get data sometime next year, and we truly hope this will, will be game-changing for patients. And, and you sourced that collaboration, did you? Yes. So you're next on the line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right, right, okay, right, yes, yes, yes. Okay, okay. very yes. good, okay, sorry. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I thought I would just uh, say a little bit about, um, again, it's returning to CAT because there was some couple of very interesting collaborative things that we had with CAT that you won't have heard about um, so far. Um, and uh, you've got to bear in mind uh, the founding of Cambridge Antibody Technology was, took place in 1989. It was founded um, 
because in the laboratory we developed, we'd come up with the idea of making human antibodies by creating vast repertoires of human antibody genes, expressing them, and then identifying the ones that would have the appropriate binding activity. Now, the time we founded CAT, we'd only uh, got a sort of idea, uh, or we'd actually only generated very small repertoires of antibody genes. Um, and uh, we're going to have to generate much, much bigger repertoires, uh, although I thought that would be quite possible using various PCR methods. Um, we still didn't have a way of selecting the repertoires. We didn't know how to do it. We knew there would be a way, uh, but we didn't actually know exactly what the way would be. And at that stage, uh, I became aware of competition with the Scripps, um, who teamed up with Invitrogen, and uh, actually bringing a lot more firepower onto the scene. I'd got a group of about five people at that stage, and I realized well, I needed to get people in quickly. There was no way I could get them from the Medical Research Council. Um, uh, they simply didn't couldn't make space available. It's quite often academic labs, you can't make space available. And they probably thought I should just get on with it and stop worrying about these other companies. Anyway, I decided the only way to do it would be to create my own company um, and work with my own company in the same way the scripts had worked with Invitrogen because I couldn't actually find any, any other source of funding or any other company willing to work with me on developing this idea which was only half-baked at that stage. But I did come across, through a friend, an Australian biotech company called Peptech. Uh, it had developed uh, work on peptides, and it was actually, uh, the board was comprised of people interested in horse racing and the use of peptides for improving horse performance. And they saw it uh, through the friend, who'd been one of the founders and actually a scientist who'd worked in the laboratory of molecular biology many years earlier, um, they saw it as an opportunity to um, uh, uh, take a punt on, a, on this company as a horse. So they, they agreed to supply the seed funding in return for a 40% stake in the company. And they also got a pet tech director on the board. In fact, he, became the chair, he was the chairman of the company. Um, and that, uh, that amount of money, which was about a million pounds, paid for our first employee and for getting the company started and paying off all the lawyers that seemed to charge much more than scientists. Um, and um, uh, so we got, the, we got uh, John McCafferty in and we started exploring an approach which actually um, was very successful, which is the approach of phage display. Now, <clears throat> really, if we hadn't done that, um, uh, if we hadn't had that money, I, I'm not sure that we would have so we would have explored phage display, but I'm not sure we'd have explored it so promptly. But we had the money and we were able to get on with it, and that proved absolutely crucial as we needed both the repertoire and the screening method to take the, co the company forward. Um, so that worked. Um, <clears throat> so sometimes speed is of the essence, but the downside was, in other words, the vision of hell was that we had the, the, at the beginning the two companies seemed to be aligned. Um, CAT uh, was intending to develop the, the technology as a platform for making a range of antibodies. And at the beginning, PEPTEC um, had wanted to use it for making human antibodies against TNF. Now, the reason PEPTEC was interested in that was using its peptide technology, it, had, uh, was it knew TNF was going to be an important molecule, not how important. 
and it, was, it had mapped all the epitopes on TNF um, using peptides and had um, essentially had a lot of IP covering all the key binding sites around, around the surface of TNF. It also had a range of monoclonals which we could use as reagents for making human antibodies. And it would have made a great deal of sense for us to have worked together. But at that stage, when Peptech um, CEO realized the scale of funding required to sort of take something forward, I, I think he probably freaked out. And um, they changed the strategy and they, they removed the, um, the sympathetic director who'd been on our, on our board with an unsympathetic director who decided that CAT would have to grow organically. Uh, through services and contracts with other people. They weren't willing to fund them, you know, our own major program. And um, uh, they, they would also help us to acquire, to, acquire um, to get funding from new shareholders. But at that stage, it was very difficult to go to uh, other than sort of small angel shareholders. Um, but they weren't willing to provide any more money. And in fact, it was worse than that because what happened was um, as we started to strike deals with companies, including Genentech, we had a deal with Genentech early on, um, uh, which I think was a Genentech look-see, see how this technology is going. Um, as we got those, started to get early-stage deals, they used that validation to create publicity in Sydney, uh, on the, you know, for the Sydney Stock Exchange. And because they got a major stake in Cambridge Antibody Technology, uh, they were able to... Uh, um, effectively uh, go in for rights issues. They were able to pump up the share price, um, meaning that their rights issues were, uh, uh, the existing shareholders did very well. So they raised money in rights issues at a good share price. Um, but that money, instead of coming back to CAT, actually was used in PepTech for a whole variety of other completely useless projects, I'm sorry to say. But we had no choice on that. So that was the, the hell component, and we were really hobbled by that. It was, it was really a drip feeding of money, um, difficulty in getting in sort of major institutional type investors. And uh, that was only really solved when CAT floated in um, uh, 1997 and PepTech later, shortly after that, sold their stake. So therefore they became cleaned. But, you know, I look at that, actually sometimes you can't have the heaven without the hell. We would be nothing if we hadn't had the money, but actually when you take money off people, there can be a downside. And I think um, in, in that case, there most certainly was. Um, there's another, another deal that happened also related to TNF. Um, uh, one of our first major pharma partners was BASF Pharma. And they were interested in developing an anti-TNF antibody. But at that stage, of course, Peptech had pre-agreed rights to develop it with us. Um, so the minute they dropped it, um, they did actually allow us to go ahead and do a deal with um, BSF Pharma. So they were actually quite helpful. They didn't hang on to things um, for their own benefit. They just said, no, if we don't want to do it, you do it. They stepped in, and that work was paid for by BSF Pharma. It was a great collaboration. There was trust all around. Uh, we, it was done very fast. The contract was done fast, and we learned how to make antibodies. BSF Pharma was in very much very good at development. It built in lots of desirable features into the antibody, like good solubility, high expression, all the things we might not have done had we not been had this large pharma company working with us. And that actually ended up developing the antibody that became Humira, which is now the world's top-selling um, antibody drug. Um, in fact, the world's top-selling pharmaceutical drug. 
But again, there was a downside. So the downside of that deal, which had been put together quite fast, was when BSF Farm were acquired by Abbott. And Abbott reviewed the contract, the, all the details of the contract we'd signed with BSF Pharma, and decided that the royalties, which would have been due to us from CAT um, on Humira, uh, could be offset by all any other royalty they needed to pay in respect of Humira, meaning we would get precisely zero for what we'd done. And that we managed to get, actually I wouldn't say we because I was no longer on the, the board at that stage, uh, we managed to get it uh, to be uh, surprisingly, surprisingly fast. We, we got it considered in English court um, and we got the best lawyers um, and we won. And in fact, the, the judge pronounced that the interpretation of the contract, which frankly should have been better, so we do need lawyers sometimes because actually it had been looked at only by company lawyers within both, both of the two companies because at that stage it was an early stage contract. Um, and no one, I suppose, had foreseen it might become the world's leading drug. Um, so that contract ha was indeed capable of misinterpretation, but the judge argued that the interpretation insisted on by Ad Abbott did violence to the English language, which actually I thought was quite a good, um, you know, summed up our view overall. So I suppose really, um, you know, what's the, if there's a lesson that I've seen in, in CAT, and actually, slightly similar thing in Demantis later. Um, uh, you need the, bi the biggest thing you need to be watchful about in partnerships with large pharma is management changes. You can actually work fantastically. The people you first work with, you can have a good understanding. But you need to bear in mind that um, that has stroke, the management can change. And, you, you know, Anna loses her job because of some other deal. And all the people you trust are out. And you've got a different group of people with different priorities. And in fact, that I think was the root of most of the problems because actually understandings which you'd reached that weren't actually strictly written down um, and bought into by all people were, were, um, were essentially set aside. And that meant, in fact, it led to strife and, and disagreement. So th that was my story, which is a slightly different angle um, um, on, on these partnerships. But I'm glad we did both of them. And I think, you know, in the circumstances, um, you know, sometimes uh, speed is what is of essence. At a small startup, the only advantage you have over large farmers, you can do things faster. And actually, if, if you worry too much about all the details of the contract that you're doing, then, then uh, frankly, you may lose the advantage of speed. So I've always taken the view, perhaps wrongly, that speed does need to get on with something and, and hope that you can wing it on the day. Um, but... Um, so I shall. So so that's so we've I, so we've gone through some sort of um, you know individual stories, and I thought I'd just might as chairman try to draw out some of the some of the sort of points, and just see if anyone wants to, any other member of the panel wants to um, um, add anything to them. So, from the point of view of of a of a small a small company, um, you know what you know, what is it that they get out of a partnership? So I would say potentially money expertise, uh, potential future growth, you know, you, because essentially it's money and you've got expertise together you can plan, and validation for other people. Do you think there's anything else from a small company point of view that, you want to, that we'd want to get out of a, a large a partnership with a large company that a small company might want to? 
I'm sort of, I, I think I was making I think, notes. Yes, I think I was making notes. So, <laughs> I think so, quite comprehensive. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to go to the large company uh, uh, perspective and say what would the, lar the large company, I heard uh, um, sort of complementary science or based in science, um, I heard innovation, you know, pick it, you can't do everything yourself, innovative science coming in. I heard, um, uh, um, I think, I think, I think, I think those were the, those are those are the main things. It's ability to bring in fresh air and and the ability to build, bring in, bring in new, bring in new science and perhaps new, new science and new approaches. Do you think there's anything else that you would be looking for as a large company to? So maybe it's more elaborating yeah. on that. Nick, yeah. A couple of preliminary points. Um, <clears throat> firstly, the CEO of uh, AstraZeneca is um, a gentleman called Pascal Sorio, yeah. uh, um, a French, Californian, Australian, which is a very interesting mix. I can yeah. tell you. Who was the who came to AstraZeneca yeah. from Roche, mm. and was the head of Genentech um, for a lot of years, and actually his most profound uh, business experience was being head of Genentech. And uh, Pascal tries to bring a lot of Genentech culture and, mm. and approach into AZ, and he talks about AstraZeneca Medimmune as Roche Genentech. That's mm. in many ways, mm -hmm. Roche Genentech are a role model for uh, AZ Medimmune, not least because of the you know, uh, the leading status Roche have as an oncology company, which we're trying to uh, catch up with. Second point, I was uh, looking at the materials for the um, panel that, uh, mm -hmm. earlier today and thinking about this, you know, is it a marriage made in heaven or hell? <clears throat> and how many people are married? In <laughs> yeah. So I've been married for 30 years, uh, not least because I met my wife at law school and she's a divorce lawyer. <laughs> we're very happily okay. married <laughs> because there's only going to be one winner but uh, without being too cliched yeah. that's that's kind of the point you know um married i've been married 30 years now i mean marriages um work because of hard work and i think anna made the point earlier it's when partnerships are going well it's kind of easy actually mm. it's relatively easy it's when partnerships are going not so well that actually you see people's true colours, and actually putting in the um, you know the um, the groundwork and the um, uh, the infrastructure such that you can deal with uh, the ebb and flow of the partnership is probably the critical thing. And again, echoing Anna, I think it's you know fundamentally it's all about the science. You know, if you get good scientific um, alignment uh, and and passion and vision between the big farmer and, and the smaller company, then that's going to take you a long way. Um, to more directly answer Greg's question, um, we started partnering because we had a, um, a hole in the cupboard. You know, the cupboard was bare, so we did it out of necessity. But now we and all our peer group realize that you've got to have a mix. You've got to do things yourself and you've got to bring things in. And this 50-50 rule of thumb seems to be GSK, Pfizer, of artists and all those bad people uh, think yeah. about things in, in, in the same way. But I also think it's a mistake to think that Big Pharma doesn't do innovative breakthrough mm. scientific research. It, so what we're looking for is companion and complementary programs. We're not sitting around, you know, thinking about late stage development and looking to source our future pipelines through <coughs> partnering because frankly there isn't enough there isn't enough high quality science mm. outside the big pharma to, f to fuel and, and, and funnel our pipelines and our investors ambitions 
So it's, it's both, it's not one mm. or the other. Yeah. Do you want to add to that? Sure, I completely agree yep. with that. It's, it's definitely both. And, and I think um, in terms of why, you know, why we partner specifically, so, so what we do is we, um, it's the business development group, we're actually part of research. We report up through research. And we work very closely with our researchers to figure out where are the scientific gaps in our research program and our pipeline. So what are, you know, what interesting targets are out there where we don't have a program, but we actually would like to have a program. And in fact, we, we come up with what I call our shopping list, which is our shopping list of, of targets or pathways or areas, specific areas of science where we'd like to have a program, but we don't have one and we don't have the bandwidth, we don't have the expertise. And BD's job is to go out and proactively seek and look for those opportunities. And there may be opportunities on brand new targets, or it might be, for example, where we have an early stage program ourselves, but we're so excited by it that we would like to, if, if somebody else out there has a program against that target, they're further ahead or they have a better program than ours, then we would want to bring that in-house. So I think it's all about, to Sean's point, thinking about how can you build the best pipeline that you can and how can you combine your internal expertise with the best of the external science that you, you see out there. Can I ask you your shopping list? Do you publish this? We, we don't. You don't. Okay, no, it's, right. it's, high, it's highly secret. It's a secret, secret, secret shopping list, right? Yeah. Okay. And we do. We, we oh, do. oh, oh, yeah. very we good. Got <laughs> <laughs> we got a book, and, and it, yeah. it's not quite a shopping list, but okay. it's areas yeah. of scientific interest. We, we, I think we yeah. found ourselves in a slightly <coughs> different place because, you know, our ability to replenish our pipeline was not as successful as it should have been. So we had all these big blockbusters, primary care drugs, yeah. uh, Crestor, Seroquel, Nexium. And we had the biggest patent expiry of, of anybody because we had these big primary, and we hadn't reinvented ourselves sufficiently, which led to a regime change, Pascal coming in. And P Pascal literally had a shopping list of about 30 things mm. before he arrived as CEO that he wanted to do in terms of licensing, acquisition, and partnership. And we probably did about 50% of it. We probably did about half, which in terms of the mm. conversion rate for a BD group is, mm. is mm. quite extraordinary. Yeah. But we, we sort of had no choice but to say to people, look, these are the areas where we need to build and we need mm. to replenish. Mm. And we're quite, we were really quite mm. yeah. vulgar about it, I guess, if, mm. um, if that's the right way of describing it. Mm. I call it open and direct. I like that. Right. So um, I'm going to ask one more question of the panel, and then I thought I'll throw the questions open to the floor. So do think about... Um, you can have lots of opportunity to ask questions, so do think about them. And when you ask a question, I would quite like just to have a question and not half an hour of a comment before you start the question. So just be quite good just to have a question, you know, in a, in a no more than you know, 20 or 30 words would be terrific. And then um, if necessary, we, can come, we might want to come back and ask you, you know, to, you know, say something about it if it seems highly relevant. But... Um, uh, so the question I want to ask the panel is, um, uh, uh, actually particularly our pharma uh, reps, is uh, as a small company, how do you flag in, how do you attract, uh, how do you flag a large pharma, I mean, how do you attract their attention? Um, <coughs> for us, um, as I said, it's, it's the science front and foremost. So it has to be um, coming to us with a... <coughs> A scientifically robust program that's novel, that's against a, either a novel target or you've got some new interesting biology. Uh, and so that's really what attracts us. Uh, we're not frankly that interested in, you know, 
don't tell us about this is going to be a billion dollar drug, here are the revenues. We, we can figure that out. And honestly, if it's a drug that's going to work, if the science is solid, then the market kind of makes itself. So, so for us, it really is about the scientific data package, understanding what you've got, which patients you're going to treat. Um, yeah, I think that's... that's that sounds like you've got from the point of view of a startup. Um, Chappie, that seems like quite a long way down, thinking about the patients you're going to be treating. and That's, that's, that's quite, quite a little way down. You don't think about that until, you, until you've actually done quite a lot of work. I, I know, we actually think about it pretty early on. I mean, mm -hmm. two, over two-thirds of our programs that go into the clinic have a companion diagnostic. Mm -hmm. So we're always thinking about how do we pre-select those patients that, go, that we're going to treat in the clinic. And so very early on in our research, we're trying to identify biomarkers that yeah. will tell us which patients are going <coughs> to respond to these drugs. And, and so it's, it's actually you know, upfront and early in, in our research that we, we do that. No, so I, understand, I understand it is in your research, but I'm thinking about your interest in a little company would yeah. be, you're, you're surely not, ex are you expecting them to behave just like you and to have sort of not only have discovered biology, but then have some lead and actually worked out what patients it's going to go into and which subset, is that what well, you want? Well, not, it kind of is actually. It is, we, okay. We need, our, because our clinical development plan needs yeah. to be based on which, which patients are we going to put into those trials. And so it's, it's maybe, you know, they don't need to have a companion diagnostic all figured out. Yeah. They don't need to say, well, we're going into exactly this patient population in this tumor type, but just have a good sense. We're looking at patients that overexpress a particular protein, patients that have mm -hmm. amplifications, fusions, mutations. So we, we do like to have that. Otherwise, we feel like we're going into a bit of a. A black box and we really we don't know how to develop the drug if, if we and, and you're interested in novel biology is because you can get some novel patent angle on it or what um, why would you want novelty in biology because it strikes me that actually novelty has got all sorts of hidden things in there so I'd like nice plain biology that's of a target that's well understood why, why would you want well, it's really because we, we're, we're interested in being first or best, so it's really, we, it's, we don't want to be a me too. So we want to okay. develop meaningful drugs. So, so usually that's where the novel biology comes in. It's, it's, the, it's the new approaches, the game-changing breakthrough approaches. Okay. okay. Do you want to call? Yeah, so I think, as a lawyer, <coughs> guess what? It depends. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it very much yeah. depends upon the stage of the asset. And having had a relatively barren period of drug discovery and even in licensing, we've got what we call a 5R model, which was published in Nature or something fairly recently, which is, you know, right tar target, right biology, right patient, you know, right payer proposition, right diagnostic. Um, I think the early stuff you can, be, you can take, you know, a little bit more of a, um, a truly scientific approach. I think the further towards and into the clinic you get, I think the smaller companies need to educate themselves around diagnostics and the payer proposition and the IP strategy because that's going to fundamentally impact valuation and deal terms and, and many many times you're sitting over the other side of the table with people who just have only the beginnings of an understanding about you know what a what a diagnostic um, will mean for patient stratification will mean for the discussion with the payers in the US and, and the governments in, in, in Europe so you don't have to become the expert because actually that's one of the purposes of partnering is mm. to your earlier point, mm. right? getting all of that mm. uh, input. You don't mm. want to reinvent that. But you need to know more about it to be more of a counterpart in the negotiation. Mm -hmm. I think if you just mm -hmm. say, look, that's, that's for you to worry about, you know, you're not going to leverage your situation. The, the other point is, 
um, or an another point is, if you've got really, really interesting science that is arguably breakthrough, we're all going to be there. <coughs> you know, JSK, Pfizer, Roche, Novartis, we'll all be there. And, it, and, it, and if, if you're not managing that, then somebody's not doing their job properly. <coughs> so it's a slight exaggeration, but all the deals that we do, everybody else who does my job has seen, and all the deals that they do, we've seen. So, um, you know, if you, it's, all, it's all about the science. And then a final point for me is we're all getting a little bit more focused and narrowing down on the areas where we believe we will win. So I think you really, really need to do your due diligence in terms of who you interact with because you can waste a lot of time and get very excited about interacting with farmer, big and mid-farmer, who at the end of the day are probably not going to be the people who will prioritize an investment with your company. So be really, really clear about who the people you're going to spend time with. But then I would go early, and I would, I would get to know them. Your point about people change mm. is, is a, an occupational hazard. But mm. the people who are there, you need to get to know them. <coughs> it's very surprisingly to me, when I came into BD, it is a people business. Mm. It's about relationships. Yeah. No, no, I think, I yeah. think it's a very, very yeah. different perspective. I think just from an investment perspective, just to, to mirror that, one of the, the first questions we'll always ask, even the first ones, what's your reimbursement strategy? Even if it's you know looking at a novel target, it's it's it's, it's no value unless someone will be willing to pay for it, and, and and people are willing to pay if that actually makes a difference to patients. And the second one is you always ask what's the IP strategy, um, and that is not we've got a patent. It's it's a much more broader and deeper on that. Just because you know at the end of the day, one has to be protected, and secondly, someone has to pay for it. Okay, thank you. So questions? Yes. Um, entrepreneurs and, uh, and investors in, in tech in Cambridge. I'm interested in um, if you're this morning, how do you how do you manage that risk that you were talking about that there might be changing strategic priorities of the of the bigger partner or changing people what but without being slow at the point where you make the deal what are the two or three things that you should be doing to set yourself up for the most chance of success so what we feel and, and find is the thing that people worry about most is decision making <clears throat> You know, speed of decision making, uh, the position of your favourite child in the portfolio, and, um, and and who actually is making the decisions. So, trying to demonstrate on a routine and regular basis, or trying to be transparent about this is when the next decision point is, this is when the next portfolio review is. We probably bring more senior people into collaboration governance than we ever used to in the past. But what's quite interesting is more senior people are really quite um, willing and, in fact, enthusiastic to be involved in JCCs and JSCs. That was never the case. You know, going back to that was like, yeah. you know, something for the little people. But now it's part of being a big farmer executive is to have those JSCs and and, 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 and so forth. And then I think finding a champion we've, we've touched <coughs> on already, and then f I think finding you know, the most senior person in the organization that you, can be your court of appeal. And certainly in AstraZeneca, uh, we've got a chief executive who is very willing and very ready to form his own personal relationships with CEOs in the companies with which we partner. Uh, and I think... I completely agree. Yes, yeah. 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 You have to? Thank you. Okay.
Yes. I have a question for, um, for Sean and Anna, actually. How does a large company decide um, if the smaller company they acquired should be left independent or <coughs> um, should be absorbed? And we have two very good uh, examples here with uh, Genentech and Medimmune and at the same time Cambridge Antibody Technology, which was completely absorbed. Do you want to open with that since you have the direct experience? Yeah, so um, the B Big Pharma BD textbook <coughs> tells you that you, before you do your deal, you should know what your uh, model is, what your alliance management model is. And we used to have an approach where when we, when we went to the board of directors in the board paper, we said, and this is how we're going to manage the relationship. You know, arm's length, hybrid, absorb. There's another model which is bring companies in, but leave them alone within and then put assets in. So we did that with a company called Spirogen, which has got an antibody mm. drug conjugate um, technology. So they maintain their independence, but will fuel from within. But actually with Pascal, <coughs> he, he thinks that's rather artificial and rather clumsy. And his preference is to do the deal and then kind of hang out with the, the, the senior leaders in the organization that you've acquired. And he'll form his opinion over three, four, six weeks. Because you never quite know how people are going to react to A, being you know, independently uh, quite wealthy uh, all of a sudden, and in you know, however you organize yourselves in the, the structure of a, a big pharma um, uh, organization and, and group. So what it, what it leads to is a period of some quite um, instability and uncertainty for how do all the functions respond, you know, what do patient safety do, what do operations do, but that's become our sort of um, method, is to take a little bit of time, uh, get to know the people a little better, see who's staying, see who's motivated, and make a decision a little way in uh, post-transaction. Yeah. No. So I actually, I completely agree with, with that method. And, and I would say, you know, that as part of that, it's trying to, you know, why is the, is the big <coughs> farmer acquiring that company in the first place? Is it because that company has a number of discrete individual programs that that partner, that the big farmer would like to actually have in its pipeline take forward? Or are you acquiring the company, maybe not just for that, but also because you see them as a future powerhouse of innovation and new programs coming up to feed the pipeline? If, if that's the reason you're acquiring the, the company, because they've got expertise um, you know, um, in-house, then in that situation, you might want to think very carefully about keeping them intact because you might destroy that. So I think it's, yeah, you know, take your time to really think about why are you acquiring the company? What does the company have in terms of assets and expertise? And then make the decision on what's the best approach. How can you measure success in measure I mean, it's quite easy. Like a failure. Well, you know, it's funny. Um, <laughs> there was a point made earlier about failure. And, and we work in an industry where 85% plus of what we do fails. When a, when a drug fails that we bought in, it's much, much more painful than when a, an organic program fails. And it shouldn't be, because you should be indifferent um, to, to your pipeline. But the fact that you've actually paid money to other people just makes it so yeah. much tougher. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. It's, it's when yeah. your heart bleeds. <laughs> but, but we have a, in AZ anyway, we have a quarterly review, you know, how are the, how are the uh, business cases progressing mm. to the deal case, and we, we measure that quite closely. 
Okay. Yes, over there. Any tips on um, the win-win uh, negotiations? Um, on the what? Win-win case for negotiations. How to achieve a win-win? <laughs> well, I, 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 okay. So, um, having not done it, um, <laughs> I would say, I mean, I sort of did the things that uh, in my case, that I thought should be done. So, I, you know, the kind of things you think you should do is to maintain a very good personal relationship with the people on the other side. You'd think you'd want to structure a deal where the profits are shared uh, equally and all the rest of it. And we did all of those things. But, um, y you know, there are so many moving parts in a, in a deal, in an industry, and a perspective of the market. So things that were hot can become cold, and things that were cold can become hot. And, you know, perspectives change. And I think that's the, you, all you can do is it can be something that, you know, a win-win from what you can reasonably foresee. But the problem is the field can move so fast that, you, that actually that can completely change and undermine any arrangements you've made. So my view is you probably just need to have a thick skin uh, you probably need to have good lawyers, um, and uh, you need to be as charming as you possibly can. You so just play all the po you know play all the possibilities, and in the end, hope they don't come after you one day. So I think a win-win is everybody coming away only feeling modestly dissatisfied. <laughs> it's a win-win, you know. Like no, okay. rarely, if ever, do people, you know, click their heels in yeah. the air and. Yeah. Know, so I think that kind of compromise is, 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 is right. I think it sounds a bit patronizing, but tell the truth. Yeah. You know, if you've got an asset that you, you badge as phase two ready, but then when you know, people who work in the arena are going to say, you know what, you're going to have to redo your 1A, but, you know, and you've already had the terms negotiation at that point in time, and you know, people are talking about the upfront and the milestones, but actually when, when diligence is done, it's not that sort of asset at all. It's very hard to get back from that. Yeah. So, you know, you clearly in, you, in the position of the smaller company, you've got to absolutely do your best to um, make the asset look as attractive and as appealing as possible. But if there's something that you're hiding, you know, it's going to get found out. So kind of flush that out sooner rather than later, which will save everybody a lot of time. We, we, we find a lot of things that fall over is, is because of that lack of tr true transparency. I think the other thing to add is just to make sure you've got the options, keep your options open. I think if you go into and it's the only deal around, then there's going to be dissatisfaction, particularly on the small company side. If you can, um, if you can have an, a number of options you can follow, which may be not, not deep doing a, a collaboration at all, um, I think you go into, go into it as a choice and, and have more satisfaction from that. So I think from a small company, what we try for our companies is, you know, don't just pursue one path, pursue multiple paths and, and, and hope that there is, a, that there is a choice. Often there's not, but it's, it's, it's aiming to get that choice. But I'd like to comment on, the, go back to, well, actually, you made a comment about it's, it's a win-win if both parties are mildly dissatisfied. And it took me back to um, when Ian Tomlinson and I, we set up Demantis, which got acquired by GSK after a bidding war. And in fact, Ian and I had felt Demantis was so exciting at that stage um, that we had felt it could be grown with the team in place into a pharmaceutical company. Now, it might well have been pie in the sky, but we thought it was possible.
possible because everything seemed to be working beautifully at that point. Um, this offer came, and um, I remember we, we um, thought about it. Of course, the investors wanted to snap it up. Once you wave money at venture capitalists, they just start drooling and they just, they just have to have it. Um, it's not possible. You know, the, they, they, you know, that's the way they do it. They, it's essentially, in many cases, there's, you know, scientists may wish to continue, but in the end, it's the people who control the shares who, who are going to uh, drive it. And generally, that's one of the reasons we don't have very large um, uh, you know, companies in the States, sorry, in the UK, difficult to scale up as they do in the States, because our local investors don't have deep pockets, or perhaps they're greedy, I don't know, but, but they, they definitely tend to cave in when people offer them large sums of money. What happened was, so we had very mixed feelings when, we, when there was this offer. It was a lot of money would make um, me even richer and Ian Tomlinson rich. So... It was, um, but, but we thought to ourselves, you, you know, should we do it? Because actually the board, to their credit, were mindful to our feelings about it because we'd put the effort in, particularly Ian. And um, yeah, in the end, we reconciled it. So we were mildly dissatisfied, but we thought, well, in some senses, it's a win. It's not a loss because we could view it as a loss. And if, if our goal had been to have a company and control it and drive it forward, we'd lost totally. But we decided who's probably in a better position to take this technology forward and get it into patients? And that was the criteria in the end that made us decide it was a win. Because in the end, you know, are we doing it for money? No. no I mean, it's nice to be rich. But actually, you, you, I think most, most people I've come across in the centuries, most scientists anyway, and medics, are more important in making something happen. And we decided probably, you know, we don't know whether we can get the money in the longer term future, uh, you know, difficult could be difficult to find the right investors. One of our trials could collapse, and then we're finished. So actually, isn't it better to have something like the powerhouse of GSK um, behind us? And so that's how we reconciled ourselves to it, and in the end, came to the conclusion. And through mild sense of dissatisfaction, it probably was a win. We'd achieved at least one of our goals. You touched on a really interesting point. As <coughs> the, the buyer, if you will, the difference um, in the motivation and expectations of the management team versus the board yeah. and even with the board within the board very very different yeah. um, uh, places and we've we've got like a bit of a rule of thumb whenever we do due diligence even if the, we decide to walk away we will give the feedback to the company in full of the due diligence findings and occasionally or, or fairly frequently people say we don't want to hear it <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to know the reasons why AstraZeneca or Roche or, or you know, BMS have walked away from our program. We'd rather just you know, carry her along okay. Gosh. And, and deal with our, with our okay. uh, fiduciary duties. Hello. Okay, yes. Hi. Sorry. Hi. Oh, sorry. sorry. No problem. Um, yeah, my question is, um, should, you, should the pharma be afraid of, um, of Amazon going into healthcare? Will you, in a few years, be competing for, for startups with, with these companies? Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a strong possibility. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think the world is going to change over the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty years to the healthcare model. I think it's very much going to go towards um, preventative medicine, diagnostics, a service model, and, and I think, yeah, I think it's, it's. It's going to change, and it's not just Amazon. I think the whole field is changing, and 
you know, Amazon is a, is a manifestation of that, and we're going to have to, to move with the times and figure out potentially new business models as we go forward. So I think the, my answer, my honest answer is we don't know. But we're alert to the risk and we're alert to the change. But this is going to sound really old-fashioned and middle-aged in an in a entrepreneurial uh, group. The pace of change in pharma hasn't been as rapid <coughs> and drastic as everybody sort of um, imagined, you know, with high-throughput screening and bioinformatics and, 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 and. and, and the thing that keeps coming back to my mind is AstraZeneca's got 60,000 people around the world, of which 10 or 11,000 people only are scientists. So we've got 11 or 12,000 people in China. 6,000 of those people are sales reps. So there are still people getting in the Chinese equivalent of the Ford Fiesta, you know, driving around, <coughs> trying to get into the, 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 the clinic and get through the scary receptionist to, to promote drugs to physicians. So I think there's the potential of a huge game-changing you know, move to data and, and tech and what have you. But you know, hitherto, that, that change has been slow and incremental. Mm. Yeah, sorry, I had that, yes. seem to be acquiring everyone under the sun. Could you comment on its rapid rise and fall? Yeah, so this, that's a really good question and quite a tricky one to answer, actually, because Valiant <laughs> are a partner of uh, mm -hmm. AstraZeneca. Um, I yeah. think it's fair to say that, so it's back to, actually, it's back to the science. So Valiant didn't have an R&D model. Theirs was a, a BD model, wasn't it? And you know their, their, their premise was you didn't need to do your own research, you could just hoover up uh, products and, and projects. And a lot of commentators said for a long time, this is a house of cards and it's going to fall. And to some extent, that's exactly, that is exactly what, uh, what happened. Um, we partnered a psoriasis program, Bridalimab, with, um, with Valiant, which actually is a, is a, a good drug. And, and actually, dermatitis is one of the areas that they're going to focus on. But I think if there's a lesson from, from the Valiant and other uh, companies who went down that route, it's that actually without underlying science, you know, you're going to run out of road eventually. Any more questions? Yes, next. Uh, yeah. uh, so in the case where uh, a new company has technology as a very innovative, they have, um, uh, they have a uh, very capable but inexperienced uh, leadership, uh, what are some of the challenges they'll face in trying to partner with a big pharmaceutical company? Sorry, so, so, sorry, so they've got a new technology, <coughs> they've got a, a good management team, sorry? Yes, but they have a, a capable management team, yeah. but it's, you know, the founding management team, it's not an experienced management team. <coughs> uh, they have connections to perhaps a pharmaceutical company, but they're yeah. uh, trying to I guess uh, understand some of the risks for taking that unseasoned team and, and trying to approach uh, a customer like that. Right. Um, so I think so. The risks that I think would be, you know, knowing whether when is the right time to partner, and you know, understanding that. So and knowing what the, what you actually want to partner. So which program do you want to partner? Are you partnering your platform? You're keeping some programs in house. It's having so it's making that decision, deciding you know when to partner, what to partner, 
And then the decision is who to partner with. So I think to a point Sean made earlier, you know, do your homework. Do your homework on the potential partners that you're talking to. Understand what their philosophy is in terms of drug development, what their reputation is in terms of a partner. Do they have the same the culture and approach that, that you like? So I would say look at all of that, do your homework. Um, yeah, and I think just you try and understand as much about your potential partner as you possibly can so that you can make a decision. Are they the right ones that you want to partner with? Are you, are you comfortable with that? I, th I think you can also say that you could, you can just um, wing it, um, uh, but you just got to be. I mean, I remember with Cambridge Antibody, David Chisel had almost no business experience. Um, he's not here, is he? <laughs> and, and he had a, an office with all sorts of self-teach books, like you know, Business for Dummies, and things you buy at airports. And he used to read all of these things, um, but he just worked at it. Um, and, he, and he would go and uh, uh, talk to companies and we'd send people out and we'd get feedback. We'd listen to the feedback. So, you know, even a first approach, uh, you know, you want to find your local friendly farmer person and just sort of get some feedback from them and then take it back in. You know, just you've got to be flexible. And in fact, in Demantis, we had a US um, uh, chap um, we, we, made, we, made, we appointed a CEO from the United States who'd been a salesman for Abbott. Um, and he actually uh, was completely happy to live in an aeroplane. And he used to uh, just be getting, he would go, uh, you know, second class, you know, I mean, <laughs> nothing fancy. Um, he would be just getting in and out of aeroplanes, going and meeting people, getting feedback, bringing it back to the scientists, saying this is what we've got, this is what we need to take account of. I think sometimes, so sometimes you can do, if you don't know, you can do it by sheer bloody-minded persistence um, and just hard work. And he, I, I couldn't believe it, you know, the first year or two years, he was going around and we had no interest. He'd give a little presentation, no interest. And, but gradually we st you start to find you could you can move up um, the, the sort of the kind of people who will see you in a large pharmaceutical company if they really have an interest. Mm -hmm. And again, we found that having a specific example, so it was quite interesting. You know, we started off with a platform technology uh, in, in Demantis. And I, you know, originally, naively, I thought, we've got a platform. You go to companies and say, look, we can make anything you want. We can make any antibody you want with this platform, just like that, zap. And they said, um, right, well, what have you got? And we said, well, we've got these two model examples, you know, of no commercial interest. Well, we'll come back when you've got something of commercial interest. So we come back with one or two, and they said, hmm, yeah, we're not interested in those. So we decided to then spend, you know, a year not going anywhere and producing a, a list of about 10 targets we'd actually got things to with nanomolar binding affinities. And um, Ian Tomlinson and Bob Connolly went out, you know, to the company and reception started to be different. They would once you'd suddenly see, ah, you'd never mentioned you know anti TGF beta before, and you'd say no, no, we didn't, we didn't think you were interested. Yeah, but that one you've got there, that's got quite a good. Is it selective? And you suddenly start to engage. You realise all of the teams in large pharma have got something they're working on or actually want to do. Um, and they're not going to tell you what it is. They're not going to tell you what their favourite target is. But you realise then you've hit the spot. 
um, that they've got an interest in that. And what they want to do is to have your molecule and check it out in their models, just to see whether this is plausible. So again, you know, you need, they won't necessarily feed you back potential targets, but you've just got to look at targets that might be interesting, make them, and then you've actually, you know, get, do some biological assays on them, and then you've got a bit of a portfolio, and you, you may be able to hook you know, somebody on it. So I think I've got a slightly different view. Yeah, okay. So Dave Chiswell is a tremendous guy, and yeah. he's flying in from Guernsey in his private aircraft yeah. every day, so from his tax exile, so it's done okay for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's right, that's right, that's right. And I think yeah. there, is a, there is a feature which is the owner, founder, inventor, yeah. who then feels that they're obliged to be the expert in the science and in the uh, yeah. patient safety and the tox, <coughs> commercial and the diagnostic and and be the only person who speaks in, the, in these wretched um, partnering, yeah. speed dating things. So I think the confident, um, impressive people are the people who can front it, but actually bring in the experts that they've yeah. got around them. And, yeah. and that's more impactful for people like us because you, look, you are looking at a team. Mm -hmm. And yeah. if it's just one yeah. person banging on and you yeah. can see the step change between what they really, really understand yeah. and the bits where they are winging it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I, I mean, in Demantis, that's what Bob Conley did. He didn't know any of the science really, but he just went round and he, you know, he kept feeding it back. He kept, we kept explaining things to him. And he would go back, and he was clearly, you know, presenting a team view. So that, I think that's that's absolutely right. You want you're looking at a team of people, and you're looking at what, as a group, they can present. I mean, there are some individuals who can do all of it. Yeah. But they're scary people to partner with. <laughs> that will be a dysfunctional partnership. Okay. Venture. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. Yes, yes, right there. Yeah. The microphone's there. Sorry. Um, as Anna has mentioned about the most important three elements for a partnership, and I wonder for like, both other farmer and also small business, what do you think about the most important element when you find a partner like, for future business? And <laughs> well, I think come from a very different different perspective about what we'd look for in our companies for the partner. I think one is 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 um, uh, the financial aspects, obviously, um, but also it's, it's it's what they bring beyond the, the finances. So it's, it's looking for those value adds, which are, which are critical, which I think both Sean and Anna have, have said. And and I think Genentech and AstraZeneca are slightly, you know, they, they are one aspect of the potential partnerships. And there's there, there are lots of other different companies out there f who have slightly different um, uh, priorities. And so. Um, it, so you want to do add value in the area where, where that, that company is, and AstraZeneca and Genentech might be on the scientific, that's it, that development and regulatory expertise, things that a small company just can't bring um, at, often to a development program. <coughs> so I think that's a, that's a critical aspect as well. But the other aspect is, is which I think perhaps hasn't been touched on, is stability and why you know, I have an inherent um, nervousness about um, uh, partnering is you have to be very careful. And I was doing a due diligence call today with someone who had worked with the program which had been licensed to Pfizer in the respiratory area. And at a strategic level, Pfizer said, we're not going to do respiratory. And that program was, was terminated and, and handed back. And, and I think you know, there, there is that, that stability. And I think you know, if you've got a fantastic respiratory product, go with a company with a, um, you know, a long pedigree and a long ambition within, within respiratory, if it's good oncology, similarly, similarly. So I think you, you have to be you know, making sure that you have some selectivity about who you want to collaborate with um, on multiple layers. Um, and and uh, it's, it's, not, it's, it's a little bit of luck as well to find those, find those all within one person, one, one group. Yeah, do you want to? Yeah, um, you mentioned that you're generally looking for um, 
IP-rich startups. Could the panel elaborate what IP-rich means? Is it a few strong patents? Is it a platform patent that can grow into a pipeline or, or something else? Maybe on that, it's, you know, part of it is, is people say, we, we, what's your IP strategy? They say, we've got a patent. And even though, however stupid I am, I actually have a patent, and I realize just how simple it is to get a patent in itself. So I think the IP can cover a multitude of things. And in therapeutics, it, it, it's a little bit more narrow. You've got the composition of matter. Um, maybe there's some, some further um, additional patterns you can bring down that the so-called picket fence of, of patterns. And therapeutics is, is quite well established. I think some of the companies we look at um, you know, particularly in the diagnostics or the genomic space, where, where patterns aren't quite so readily available. Um, the IP may be much more knowledge-based. It's know-how. It's, it's that green-fingered aspect of being able to create something. Um, and, and it may not necessarily be patents. So when I say IP-rich, why very conscious is that IP-rich does not necessarily mean only patents, and, and in therapeutics it doesn't mean only um, substance and matter. It's that broader aspect of it. And one of the most common things with, with entrepreneurs, um, and, and ac academic entrepreneurs particularly, is, is um, understanding all the array of potential protections that may be available and getting expertise um, at an early stage. And you know, one of the advices, if you've got a, you know, only a few tens of thousands getting a good IP uh, uh, lawyer involved at an early stage to be able to form that because that's the very much the essence of the value within any, any company in, in our space is, is what's that IP estate that they've got. And that leads itself all the way through the whole um, life cycle of the company and in any partnership. Um, and we, you know, we see so many deals which fall down on, on IP um, uh, for whatever reason. Um, so so that, that's critical to any, any early stage company because it's so critical to partners. It's critical when you actually get to the market as well. Back row, back row, and the end. Sorry, just this way. <coughs> yes, 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 yes. The guy waving his hand. There Thank we. you. <laughs> um, so my question is about uh, deal structures and comparing the deal structure in this industry vis-a-vis -vis some other industries. Um, so what comes across to me is in um, pharmaceutical and biotech space, um, the deal structure has been well, well, has been thought through. It's it's quite complex. To give an example, um, if you if a big pharma is investing in a uh, phase one company, so there there would be success based payments depending on uh, <coughs> different phases. There will be payments based on royalty. There will be um, there will be uh, <coughs> this is the allocation of the ultimate revenue. So, so sorry, so what's, what's the question? Sorry. Yeah, so it's essentially so comparing the deal structures in pharma. Do you have a view about deal structures in other industries from a partnership perspective? And whether you recommend the deal structure that, uh, that, is, that is done in your industry as a, how, how do you see it as a benchmark against um, other simpler drill structures in other industries. Sean, did you want to comment on yeah, that? So yeah, I, I think drill um, <clears throat> structures in pharma currently is quite tried and tested, actually. <clears throat> you know, there, there are only so many variants. You talk mm. about innovative deal making, like really, you know, it's all about risk sharing, isn't it? And actually to pick up some of the early questions and comments about what will the big pharma do with your <coughs> asset once it's in their clutches, You've got to therefore be confident that the upfront monies that you're getting compensate for the risk that somehow that 
you know, uh, dips down in the portfolio and the prioritization. So actually, when you're looking at it as the smaller company, you've got to take all of those things in, in, into account. But, you know, the, the deal structures are there and you can, you can uh, <clears throat> we can all research them and we can all look at comparables. I think that's terribly important. Back to the point about due diligence. I think you need to know what, what is a comparable and what sort of, um, what was the tariff for that, for that, for that particular program. And, and then I think there is a still a bit of company, comp, you know, big, our peers do it slightly differ in their approach. Mm. And, you know, because I'm from AstraZeneca, I can pick on Pfizer. Pfizer either acquire you and absorb you or they partner with you and then they acquire you. Um, I think we and probably Roche try and be a bit more courses for courses. You know, what's the, what, what does the science suggest you should do in terms of risk share and um, milestones and, and, and all the rest of it? Just, just to plug something we did, which I think was that innovative. We, uh, AstraZeneca and BMS bought a company called Amelin for $7 billion together. So two big pharma coming together and buying a company for $7 billion and then putting the products from that company into their pre-existing collaboration. Uh, you know, we feel that was quite clever. That was quite innovative. Hmm. Sorry, the second part was whether you know, companies in tech or other parts are they actually catching up to pharma in terms of that is scaling the model, or do you think I think it's very difficult to make comparisons. You know, obviously, the, the development cycle for, for a tech product, we, we invest in tech companies as well. And it, it's, it's, it's a very different, and I suppose the economics of those are, are very different, partly because of the route to market, the time to market is, is different. And therefore, I, I suppose they have different challenges within in pricing of those, those ones. And, and, they, um, and so I think it's, it's hard to make, take lessons from our, our tech deals or our, our tech companies, which we can apply to our life science, I think, is, is generally... Um, it's quite difficult because it's such a different, uh, a different sector. Okay, I think probably one last question. Anyone from this side? Because I may have overlooked <laughs> you. Yes, at the top. <laughs> uh, this question is <coughs> more for for the Gregory in particular. <coughs> uh, you you have done two successful partnerships and acquisitions, and I mean in this industry, the the the, the greatest risk is the scientific research risk. So. What do you think were some of your key ways that you you did to to ensure that uh, you could repeat you know success? Um, so actually, I don't think the biggest risk is the scientific research. I think that's the that's pretty. I think if you've got a good scientific base, that's a huge de-risking of the whole thing. The biggest risk relates to finance and being able to identify the right uh, the right uh, product, and then of course clinical trials. So I think in terms of um, you know, I felt always that in the companies I was working with that the science was in good shape and, you know, I knew it would deliver, um, you know, at some level. It was a question of finding out just how widely applicable it would be. But I think, I think there are other much bigger risks. Um, and, and, you know, one big risk is financing, um, you know, getting, particularly if it's innovative, persuading people that... Uh, People are very, very risk of, or let's say venture funds tend to be very risk averse. It's quite difficult to explain if you've got something totally novel that people should invest in it. And they tend to want to have quite a lot of um, demonstration of it, even though it's quite clear that it, well, to the scientists, it is going to work. Um, you know, the people in the field tend to be rather 
uh, conservative in my, in my view if you present them with a new platform. But I, but I, I never saw the science as the biggest risk. I think it's, up, it's many other things. It's interesting you should say that. I think coming from the other aspect of financing yeah. these companies, actually, and, and just make a plug for another of Sir Greg's kind of, kind of bicycle therapeutics where we're investors. Actually, do as we plan the science, we have the worry about. And I think from a financing perspective, it's interesting not so worried about the science, but for that example, it took quite a few years to get that kind of momentum of interest. And then once you get that momentum, actually, you have to bat the money away uh, with a big stick as, as, as people kind of get the interest of it. But I, I think, actually, if the science is good, it will attract, hopefully, good money as well. And with whom yeah. AstraZeneca have a partnership? We have a partnership. That's good. Yes, yes, yes. We've, yeah. yeah, it's not a big partnership, though. Not big enough. I mean, it's not big enough. <laughs> <laughs> we could do with more money. <laughs> Again? <laughs> I think we've actually... It's, it's 8 o'clock, so... Good. As far as you want to... Well, thank you. Thank you.